What a blessing to come to church to worship, and I am looking forward to this message on worship. There's a place that I like to go to that I would like to suggest to you uh, if you have questions about the Bible and I'm not available or um, you're, you're someone you know that you like to go to is not available, it's called GodQuestions.org. I put it on the screen for you to see. GodQuestions.org is a, is a great place to ask questions that may come up, may pop up. I actually go there a lot to do some research, to read up on certain things. I was reading this week about reverence for God, reverence for God, and a statement jumped out at me. This statement I put on the screen for you to see. This is the statement that I read. Sinful humanity does not know how to worship a holy God with reverence and awe. Sinful humanity does not know how to worship a holy God with reverence and awe. And I feel like that jumped out at me because it's so true. It's so true. Sinners don't worship God, they hide from God. They hide from God. Sinners don't worship God, they hide. There are three people that were born without sin. Only three. Adam and Eve created by God in the Garden of Eden, and then Jesus. Everyone else has been born with a sinful nature. So Adam and Eve experienced really what I would call um, a worship that is, is like no other in the Garden. They walked with God daily. If you read in the book of Genesis, you'll see that. Then they disobeyed God, the fall. We call it the fall. And, they, and they, they, they then did something that's indicative, I believe, of all sinful humanity, which is what this is saying. What did Adam and Eve do when God called on them after they disobeyed God? They hid from God. Because that's what sin does to a person. It ruins our relationship with God, and we don't know how to worship him. That's the unfortunate reality of sin. There was an, a, a prophet named Isaiah. If you've ever read in the book of Isaiah, you will know that Isaiah had an encounter with God. Actually, a very interesting encounter. It's in Isaiah chapter 6. He had a vision of what it was like to be in God's presence in the, the throne of heaven, and he saw seraphim singing as we sang this morning, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And God's voice shook this room that was filled with smoke. And Isaiah had only one response to being in the presence of a holy God. It says, he replied, verse 5, Woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips meaning I'm a sinner. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So Isaiah, this is very important for us to see this morning, Isaiah saw himself as a sinner, compared it to a holy, perfect God. What do we usually do when we... When we compare, who do we usually compare ourselves to when it comes to our, our good and bad things we do? We don't compare ourselves to God. We compare ourselves to other people. 
and that puts us in a different light. But Isaiah was comparing himself to a holy, perfect God. And he said, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, I'm in trouble. And he wanted to hide from God because that is the normal response when a sinner is in the presence of God. We want to hide from God. So sin becomes the real first obstacle, if you will, in worshiping God. In worshiping God. If you want to worship God genuinely, sin is an obstacle. The second one is bad theology. Bad theology. What does that mean? What's theology? Theo is God. Ology is the study of. So theology is just the study of God. And unfortunately, there are a lot of Christians in America, I will say it that way because I really have not uh, gone to a church globe, anywhere else in the world but in America, so I ref- reference American Christians, and a lot of times there is a difference between Western Christianity, globally speaking, and uh, in Europe, in, in Asia, and different places. So American Christians, I think, struggle with bad theology. There's a reason for it. I've said it many times. It's Hollywood. <laughs> we... We have a lot of movies available to us. We have a lot of social media available to us. And we often get a lot of bad theology from those sources. Many people treat Jesus like their buddy. Jesus is not your homie. God is not the big guy in the sky or the man upstairs. You and God are probably not on the same page. But... That's kind of how we approach God in America sometimes. It's a very flippant approach to God. It's a very irreverent approach to a holy God. And to me, it's an obstacle to really worshiping God with awe, with a holy fear. A third obstacle is a bad example. A bad example. And what I mean by that is the typical worship service in America may actually hinder a person's worship. The typical worship service, common for churches, to just say to you, come as you are to worship. You can wear your shorts, you can wear your jeans, you can drink your coffee, and you can worship God. We want you to, you know, um, enjoy the contemporary music, enjoy the positive message, and, and we know it's so important if your kids are safe and they're having fun, mama's happy, and you're going to come back. We, we, we as, when I say that, I say that as church leaders, that's kind of the, the focus of the worship service is to make everybody feel comfortable. Boy, we're going to see today, that's not what God is concerned with at all when it comes to worshiping him. But that's sort of the, the way we've, be, we've kind of adapted and, and come accustomed to in America. That's kind of the normal church service. And I'm just saying that can be an obstacle for many when it comes to worshiping God with reverence and in awe. Now, you don't have to go home and change and put on a suit. You can keep drinking your coffee, all right? I'm okay with that because as we see in the Word, God does not look at the outward appearance. He doesn't. Where does God look? In the heart. He looks inward. He knows your heart, and he wants you to worship him with all your heart. He wants you to have a clean heart. In fact, we'll see today, 
a focused mind on his holiness. And if you worship God this way, you will get closer to God, which is what most of us want to do. We want to get closer to God. Uh, but as we'll see today also, you can't get too close. Um, that's the awe on Mount Sinai. The Israelites are approaching Mount Sinai, and the awe on Mount Sinai is how to worship God with a holy fear, with a holy fear in awe. So that's where we're at. Not the most cheerful introductions that I've done in the past, uh, kind of straight to the point, but it's important for us to see it because this is a Bible teaching church. I want you to know the word. I want you to know God. I want you to have good theology, a healthy theology, so you know God and you can make him known. So we're going to pray. Together we're going to get into the word. Uh, let's bow our heads. Father, I come to you just humble today, Lord, to bring this message because I know that I've wrestled with it. It wasn't easy to, to craft the words to bring forth. And Lord, I know that your spirit is going to do the work and not my words. May the power rest on you and in speaking the way you speak to us. Father, I pray that I could simply be a vessel. As John the Baptist said, uh, may I become less and you become more. Father, I pray for uh, a true worship service here where we worship you with a clean heart in awe of your, holy, your holiness. Holy, holy, holy God are you. You're God Almighty. May we worship you through this, through this message and through our final song. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. So if you want to jump in the Bible with us, there should be a Bible in a chair next to you, or in front of you, rather, and they're free. If you'd like to take that Bible home, if you're our guest, please, it's yours. We have plenty to share, and if you want to go on to your favorite Bible app, that's okay. No one's going to think you're texting in church. You can go on your Bible app and do it that way as well. Lots of ways to look at the Bible. But we're in Exodus 19, verse 1. We've been on this journey for a while from Exodus. We started in the beginning of Exodus several weeks ago. And in verse 1, we see that the journey of the Israelites has taken them out of Egypt, and they're in the wilderness, and they're in the desert. And it says, on the third new moon, the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, they came to the wilderness of Sinai. Now you can look this up on a map, you can see where the Sinai Peninsula is, you can see where the Red Sea is, all of this stuff exists, okay, this is not made up, it's all there, and three months is about the time that it took them to get to this point, it says the third new moon, so that tells us three months, they were redeemed from slavery, they arrive at Sinai, and they're going to be here at this place. And we're going to be here camping out a little bit um, on this. But they're camping out here for about nine months. There's some things that are going to happen. God is going to speak through Moses. And they're going to get the law, the Ten Commandments, and all of that. But here we have uh, this, this first message called the awe on Mount Sinai. And the awe is about they're going to meet God. 
they're going to get up close and personal with God. And it's going to scare them. I'm just going to be honest. It's going to scare them. But I want to give you just a little timeline of the first five books of the Bible. How many of you have ever tried to read the Bible and started in the first book? How many of you got to Leviticus and gave up? <laughs> That's usually what happens, you know? And if you get through it, I have this one image I usually show. It's like a little kid with a fist pump, and he's like, I got through Leviticus, you know? But then comes numbers, and it's like, oh my gosh, what is God doing to me here? I'm trying to read the Bible. Well, don't get discouraged if you try to read the Bible, and the first five books of the Bible are all written by Moses. Genesis, excuse me, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they're all written by Moses. And if you've ever tried to read through them, you may struggle because there's a lot of things that are repetitive. Sometimes it's not always chronological. And I just wanted to give you a just a, an overview understanding of what those books are about and what's the timeline of them. First of all, the book of Genesis starts with the creation of the world. Now, obviously Moses wasn't there, so he had a supernatural revelation of what happened, what took place. And God doesn't give him any kind of timeline. I mean, there's debates day, you know, all the time, everywhere. Is the earth 10,000 years old? Is it 10,000 zillion years old? I don't even know you know, what the latest is on how old the earth is, but I'm not going there today, just to let you know. Sorry if you got excited for a minute. The truth is, nobody can be definitive about how old the earth is because we don't, we weren't there. You know, I, I love my, one of my favorite uh, creationist uh, guys says, you know, how do you date a rock? You know, we have these dating uh, met methods, and how do you date a rock? He's like, I don't know, get her phone number. Like, how do you do that? It's hard to date things that are outside of our time frame. What we do know, and one of the reasons why I'm a young earth um, believer and a creationist, is that one of the things we know about is that most civilizations, pretty much all of them, existed within 10,000 years. That's what we do know. And so that's something to think about. Well, Genesis doesn't even focus on just how old the earth is or the creation. It, it actually focuses on the beginning of a nation, the nation of Israel. It starts with Abraham, and Abraham, scholars will all, pretty much all agree, was born 2165 B.C. So right in the middle of Genesis, you have a date to work with. 2165 B.C., Abraham is born, Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has a family of about 70, moves them to Egypt, and that's where they die, and that's where Genesis ends. Now, Exodus opens up with a big, giant gap of some say 400 years between Genesis and Exodus. God's silent for a long time. Then in Exodus, we see the birth of Moses, chapter 1. In chapter 2, we see that two chapters cover the first 80 years of the life of Moses. The rest of those five books is just 40 years of time. It's the life of Moses in 40 years. And specifically, Exodus 3 to the end in Leviticus really just covers one year of time, from the first Passover to the second Passover. Because they're going to be at Mount Sinai for just over nine months. That's the year plus the three months to get there. And then they're going to head out, and they're going to wander around the desert for 40 years. That's numbers. 
and then they're going to get to the point where they're going to go into the promised land, and Moses is going to give them this final sermon at the end of his life. At age 120, he preaches a doozy, let me tell you. That's Deuteronomy. That's what Deuteronomy is. It's a sermon, and Moses is retelling everything that happened. So there you go. That's the first five books of the Bible. If you want to read them, don't get discouraged. Understand what they're all about. And they're important because when you read the Bible, you understand God. You get a good theology. And when you understand God, you worship him with awe and with a holy fear. So let me take you to the first time Moses met God. Maybe you remember the first time you had an encounter with God. First time you had your eyes open to the truth that God is real. I remember that day for me. I remember knowing for sure for the first time in my life God loved me and he had a plan for my life. That was a life-changing day and it's a wonderful day. Well, God met with Moses for the first time back in Exodus 3. Moses thought that the end of his life was going to be as a shepherd walking around the desert uh, uh, Mount, uh, near Mount Sinai and he didn't realize that God was going to show up. It's uh, verse 1 of Exodus 3. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro. Remember him? We met him last week. Yes, turns out he's not a Beverly Hillbilly. <laughs> the priest of Midian, he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness. He came to Horeb. If you see the word Horeb, that's the same as Mount Sinai. Same thing. Horeb is Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. And Moses saw a bush, and there was something special about that bush. What is it? It was burning. That's right. It was on fire, but it wasn't burning up. And so he approached it because this was interesting, right? You see that? You would go and check it out. And then a voice came and said, hey, take off your shoes. This is holy ground. So he took off his shoes. And then, verse 6, the voice said, I'm God the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And when Moses realized who was speaking to him, what did he do? He hid his face from God. And that's what we do as sinners when we're in the presence of a holy God. We hide from God. A normal reaction. So now... Several months later, Moses is back at the mountain. He's back at Mount Sinai. But this time, he's done what God told him to do, which, by the way, it took some convincing, didn't it? He needed a little help from his brother Aaron, and he did it, though. You know, he, he, he obeyed God, and we saw all of that, and they went through the Red Sea, and now they're back at this mountain he's familiar with. And it says that when they set up camp and they kind of settled in, if you've ever been camping, you know it takes a little bit to settle in, right? All you campers out there, I'm not even a glamper, okay? I, I, no thank you, all right? Running water, I need that. Uh, anyway, um, so verse 3 of 19 says, Moses went up to God and spoke to him. He knew right where to go. He'd been there before, and God had some instructions for the people of God. And remember, the amount of people is roughly two and a half million at the base of the mountain, Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. So I'm going to read to you verses 10 through 15. 
so you can see the directions that God gives to Moses to give to the people. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Consecrate means to set apart, to make holy. Be ready for the, uh, sorry, and let them wash their garments. Be ready for the third day. On the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. If Moses had caution tape, he would have put caution tape around the perimeter of the mountain. That's basically what he's saying here. No hand, uh, where are we at, verse 12? 13, thank you. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. When I first read that, I'm like, wait a minute, they didn't have guns back then. With an arrow, it does say that, uh, with an arrow. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain, to the mountain, not up the mountain, to it. And Moses went down from the mountain to the people, consecrated the people. They washed their garments, and Moses said to the people, Be ready, the third day is coming, and don't go near a woman. First of all, guess what day it is for Israel? It's laundry day. And it's bath day. Parents, don't you love bath day? I remember those days. I think I might have done a dance the last time I had to give my daughter and my son a bath. All right? When that day is over, it's a beautiful thing. Isn't it, parents? I mean, it's torture sometimes. Those, they're slippery. <laughs> it's hard. So it's laundry day. It's bath day. God wants his people clean. Clean yourself up. Wash your clothes. Clean between your toes. Make yourself pretty. And by the way, don't go near a woman. And you know what he means by that. No hanky-panky for three days. Three days. Why? Get your mind on God. That's what he's saying. Get your mind on God. He's coming on the third day. Now, If memory serves, something else very significant happened on the third day. Does anybody remember what happened on the third day? Yes! Easter, Jesus rose from the grave. All right, good. What's the point of this cleansing, by the way? Why is God instructing Moses to have the people cleanse themselves? And the answer is because to be clean is the right approach to worship God. If we want to worship God, we must be clean. And it's obviously not an outward thing here, even though it was outward for them. But as we know, much of the Old Testament is a foreshadowing of what is to come. He wants them clean. He wants their minds focused on God. No distractions. So now the day is here. Now they're going to meet God up close. Verses 16 through 20. It's the morning of the third day. It's not like any other day. There were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. So all the people in the camp trembled. By the way, we'll, we'll, come, we'll come to this in the, day, in the weeks ahead, but in Hebrews 12, it references this 
and it says that Moses trembled with fear. The people were trembling. Verse 17, Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. And Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And the smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And then it says in verse 19, As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. By the way, there are places in the New Testament where God speaks in the presence of Jesus and the people said it sounded like thunder. There's other places that it says this. Job says it. So God spoke and it sounded like thunder and the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. So what you have here is this tremendous escalation of noise and lightning and thunder, I'm sure, to match it. And these people find themselves in a position of, we can't run and hide. Um, it was rocky, I'm sure, and they probably tried to hide under the rock, but it wasn't working. They can't run from God. And this is partly how God taught them awe and reverence, how he gave them an, a holy fear of him, which is why I titled this message, The Awe on Mount Sinai. And by the way, that picture is Mount, the view from Mount Sinai today. The background of that picture. That's Mount Sinai. So there's an awe on Mount Sinai because God is on Mount Sinai. And listen, he wasn't scaring them like I used to do to my brother and sister because I didn't like them when I was growing up. You know what I'm talking about, right? You had a sibling, you scared them. Yes, yes, yes. I got a young man who's, yes, yeah, we do that. He's revealing himself up close, and that's scaring them. He's showing them that he is who he is. He's revealing himself. It reminds me of this time that I went to a Pistons game at Little Caesars Arena. And I went with a friend who had a connection to one of the NBA players. And as we're watching the game from somewhere halfway up the arena, you know, you look down on the game, and, and you're like, yeah, these guys, they're average height, they're normal, they're playing basketball, I play basketball, I can hang with these guys, you know. And it doesn't look like much from afar. But then after the game, we waited around, we went down to the floor, and I got to meet Boston Celtic Al Horford. And Al Horford uh, is, was a friend of my, my friend, and got a picture with him, and some other players came out, and I'm six foot four. I'm a big guy. I'm, I'm taller than average. But I was intimidated by these guys. These guys, I mean, these NBA players, I swear to you, they must be descendants of the Nephilim giants that we read about in Genesis 6. These are giants. They are big up close. Thankfully, Al's a nice guy. We're in a first-name basis now, so just so you know. I'm sure he'd remember me if he was back in Detroit. But I think this is what happened to the Israelites. Before God was in a cloud, guiding them through the Red Sea, protecting them from the Egyptians, but now he's up close. He's so up close that they are freaking out. They have a holy fear now for Yahweh, for God. 
And Moses goes up again to talk with God. I look forward to a message coming uh, called Moses, the Mountain Climbing Mediator, because <laughs> he climbs this mountain like seven times, we're going to see. But he is reminded on this trip up the mountain by God to make sure that they consecrate themselves, make sure that they don't come too close to the mountain. They cannot get too close. And Moses goes back to tell them, and you're going to find out that there's no worry, they're not getting close because of what happens next. What happens next is amazing. I don't know if you've ever realized it before. I mean, I don't know if you've read Exodus 20 or if, you, if you've read through Exodus. I'm going to be honest with you, I didn't really realize it either. And part of the reason why I didn't realize it is because I watched the movie and I didn't read the book. And we know the book is much better, isn't it? Always. You see, in Exodus 20, God gives them the Ten Commandments. And I've seen the movie many times. When God gives the Ten Commandments, he gives it to Moses on these tablets, and he comes down like this, right? That's not how it happened the first time. The first time God gave the Ten Commandments, he spoke them audibly. Did you know that? God's voice came from the mountain speaking the Ten Commandments to the people. Exodus 20, verse 1. God spoke all these words saying. Now, how do we know that's not, he's not talking to Moses privately like he was before? Because it ends, Exodus 19 ends, by saying Moses returned to the people. He's not with God on the mountain. He's with the people. And now God is speaking, and there's another verse that proves what I'm saying, is that God is speaking audibly to the people, and he says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of this house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment of ten. He will say all of them to them on Mount Sinai. And what is the people's response to God speaking to them? What is their response? It's a holy fear. They are in awe of God. If you could just put yourself in that position, where you're on the base of this mountain and the trumpet and the thunder and the lightning. I mean, you know what it's like when there's a bad thunderstorm. You know how scary it gets. The windows rattle. We were in Myrtle Beach a couple of years ago when a hurricane came through. You know, it, thankfully it was a, a, a lower level. I think it was a five. That's, and five's not so bad and one's really bad. You can tell we live in Michigan. We don't really get hurricanes. Whatever stage it was, it, but the windows were rattling. It was scary. So these people, they're at the foot of the mountain, and they are experiencing God, and they are trembling, and they're afraid, and they're getting a holy fear. And their response now to after that, God speaking to them. Verse 18. All the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking and the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off. I like that part. They weren't coming close. No worry, Moses. The caution tape is in good shape. They're not even going to get close to that. They said to Moses, this is their response, by the way, you speak to us and we will listen. But don't let God speak to us anymore lest we die. 
I mean, God's voice was so much, too much for them to handle. Probably some thought they were going to have a heart attack. And Moses said to the people, don't fear. God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you so you may not sin. And that verse right there, verse 20, you should underline that because that's the key here. One of the greatest desires for God that God has for you, one of the greatest desires our Father has for you, and I say it that way because, parents, you have this desire for your children. If you have children, you have this desire. You want them to live wonderful, fulfilled, happy lives. Am I right, parents? You want that for your children. You want what's best for your children so that they would live wonderful lives. And God is saying, I want the same thing. And you know how to get it? Run from sin. Live holy lives. That's what God is saying here. Know who I am. I take sin seriously, and so should you. And you should not be towing the line and walking the line. You should get as far away from it as you possibly can. That's what God says. That's what God wants. And he's in, instilling in them a holy fear so that they would live holy lives. And now we come to the dilemma. You see, we can deal with bad theology by reading the Bible and getting good theology and belonging to a Bible-teaching church and getting good theology from that and Bible studies and so on. And we can deal with... with um, uh, um, bad examples, because let's face it, there's lots of Christians out there and there's lots of churches and preachers out there that are, are not teaching and preaching and, and giving good examples of what it means to worship God. We can overcome that, but we cannot overcome this sin problem that we have all by ourselves. It's not possible. You cannot compare yourself to somebody else and think that, oh, I'm better than them, so God will let me into heaven. It doesn't work that way. You can't even worship God. You've got to deal with this problem. So how does a sinner worship a holy God? How do we overcome it? Isaiah, chapter 6. He was in the presence of God. He understood the problem. Same problem we understand. And what happened? Verse 6 and 7. One of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. We need our sin atoned for. What does that mean? The word atone means to cover. In a little bit we're going to get into Exodus where it talks about the mercy seat that covers the Ark of the Covenant. The mercy seat was a shadow of something greater to come. And Paul says it in Romans 3.25, he points out that Jesus Christ is our mercy seat. Now when you read your Bible, it might say the word propitiation, but that word is the same as mercy seat. Going back to this in Exodus of the mercy seat, the point is this, when we are saved from our sin by grace through faith in Christ alone. When Jesus Christ saves us and takes care of our sin problem, he gives us a clean heart, and now we can worship God in awe with a holy fear. But until we take care of that, our worship, we're not getting close. When we're a sinner, we're hiding from God. 
But when we have a clean heart, we can worship God in awe with a holy fear. Amen? David understood this wonderfully when he wrote Psalm 51. I have a homework assignment for you. As a former teacher, I give out homework assignments. You know this. Read Psalm 51 this week. Read Psalm 51 more than once. Psalm 51, verse 1. David writes, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Isn't that what we see God did for the Israelites? And then this is the verse that I love. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. David understood this truth. If you want to worship God in awe with a holy fear, you need to have a clean heart. That's what matters the most. So you can keep coming and bringing your coffee and wearing your jeans. That doesn't matter. What matters is your heart. When you come to worship God, is your heart clean? Are you crucifying your sinful nature, your unholy desires? Don't feed them and make them stronger. Starve them to death. If lust is your issue, make a covenant with your eyes like Job did not to look at another woman. If gossip is your issue, carry around duct tape for your mouth. If greed is your issue, we have an offering basket, two of them if you need. Put it all in there if greed's your problem. Sorry, that's just a preacher joke. Put to death your unholy desires. Take your sins seriously. God does. And as James wrote, the brother of Jesus, cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, and draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Draw near, worship God in awe and with a holy fear and sing the song that they sing in heaven. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Sinners hide from God. Saved sinners worship God in awe with a holy fear. Amen?